Well, good morning, everyone. Well, okay. Well, I guess you guys are ready to be outside in this spring weather. Get on with it, dude. Good morning. It's great to be with you all. Uh, Welcome to Sojourn. If you're a guest here, let me give you a special welcome. My name is Will, and I'm on staff here with the church. And whether you are just new to the area and checking the church out, or uh, you don't really have a church background at all, and this all feels a little bit strange to you, if you're honest, wherever you're at on that spectrum, welcome. I'm really glad that you're here. This morning we're going to continue our time in the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, preached by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. So if you brought your Bible, let me invite you to turn over there. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some people uh, walking down the aisles. They would love to give you one of those. So if you would just lift your hands if you'd like to read along with us. We're going to be jumping over to a couple different passages this morning. So being able to read along would be helpful. So go ahead and lift your hand if you'd like a copy. And if you don't have a, a Bible at home, Uh, you can feel free to take that one with you. We'd love for you to have that as our gift to you this morning. But we are going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to read beginning with verse 1 all the way down to verse 5. This is God's word to us this morning. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning? Lord, we, as your people, as your body, collectively come to you this morning. And as we have been considering life in your kingdom and the inverted nature of your kingdom, our request before you this morning is quite simple. Lord Jesus, we ask for your kingdom to come in our midst. And we recognize that your kingdom isn't made up of buildings or a political system, but your kingdom is made up of, of, a, of a king who sits on a throne over our lives. And so I pray that our lives then would reflect the values of your kingdom. I pray that our lives would reflect, reflect people who are poor in spirit, people who mourn over the brokenness in this world. And as a result of those things, that our lives would reflect a meekness as well. I pray for those in our midst who don't know you at all. I ask you, Lord, that your kingdom would even come in their lives. And though they're outside now, that they would see how how beautiful it is inside the kingdom of our God and how much redemption and hope and freedom there is found under King Jesus. And so, again, we ask, O God, let your kingdom come this morning. Let your will be done in our lives. Um, For the sake of uh, your glory and our good, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me start off by asking you guys a simple question this morning. You can think on it for a second. What do you think, what kind of characteristics or attributes would you associate with a person who will be successful in this world? Someone who will advance, someone who will arrive at a state of peace and prosperity and success. What sort of characteristics might you expect such a person to have? Um, Given that this is going to be a large part of our conversation this morning, I thought we might take a few suggestions from a uh, very successful businessman, an entrepreneur, a man by the name of Dwight K. Schrute. Um, 
If you uh, don't know who Dwight Schrute is, he is a character on the TV show The Office that has uh, recently, or not so recently, he hasn't been on TV for a little while now. Um, but he was that socially awkward yet overachieving coworker that no one wanted to work with, but he was achieving nonetheless. So here's a couple suggestions from him. I think he would say if you're going to be successful in this world, physical and athletic ability would be helpful. Once when asked how uh, fast he was, he responded, I'm fast. To give you a reference point, I'm somewhere between a snake and a mongoose and a panther. I think he would also contend that a successful or advancing person would be able to defend themselves, as he once said. People say, oh, it's dangerous to keep weapons in the home or the workplace. Well, I say, it's better to be hurt by someone you know accidentally than by a stranger on purpose. (laughs) And then lastly, I think he would suggest that we have an incredible amount of focus and attention if we're going to be successful in this world. Once when his boss asked for his full and undivided attention, does anyone remember his response to that? His response was, you couldn't handle my full and undivided attention. (laughs) And so, in all seriousness, I guess now that I have your attention, what type of characteristics would be associated with a person who will arrive at a state of peace, success, and prosperity? Maybe you think that it boils down to hard work. If you put in more effort than the next person, if you work hard enough, then you'll, then you'll arrive there and you'll, you'll be good. Maybe you think it comes through strategic planning, um, forecasting the future, getting all your ducks in a row and you'll, you'll be able to advance ahead and arrive at a, at a state of prosperity. Maybe you think it just boils down to being lucky. Like the people who, who, are, who succeed in this life, in, in a lot of ways it just boils down to being at the right place or the right time. Or maybe you think that it's just sort of entitled to all of us, that we would all have a sense of peace and prosperity in our life. However you answer that question, I'm willing to bet that none of us would put on the list of the things that will bring us to peace, prosperity, and success. Gentleness, meekness, quietness of spirit. And this is where the upside-down, inverted, backwards kingdom of Jesus is going to confront us this morning. Because Jesus is saying to us, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. In the kingdom of our God, meekness is a cherished and prized attribute that's held of all those who would find entry into it. Um, And if you don't really have a church background, when I describe the kingdom of God, maybe that sounds strange to you, but all all that I mean when I say that is that the kingdom of God isn't so much a place on earth or a set of a a political system, or anything like that, but the kingdom of God is simply the place where Jesus' authority is recognized and submitted to. Think in terms of reign, not realm, not not a realm, but where his reign is manifest, that's where his kingdom is. And in that kingdom, meekness is prized. And so what I want to do this morning is just lay before us a picture of what meekness looks like, what meekness is, um, and simply call our church to, to begin to pursue it as a key attribute even in our, our own midst as well. Now, before I do that, when I say meekness, uh, some of you might not even be familiar with what I mean by that. Maybe you've heard of the, the artist Meek Mill, but beyond that, what is meekness? Uh, well, Webster defines it like this. It's showing a quiet and gentle nature, not wanting to fight or argue with people. It involves being submissive, moderate, or mild. And then the New Testament definition for it, it comes from a Greek word that means that which is gentle or pleasant. 
It could involve even self-effacement, having a low view of yourself, or being friendly towards others, or being very others-oriented. And so in meekness, you see this picture of someone who's very gentle, uh, very mild, uh, even, even quiet. Um, that's the, the New Testament picture of meekness. But it's actually hard even to put a definition on it, even studying it through the Bible. Um, so sometimes it's helpful to think about meekness as, as the opposite of meekness. So the opposite of meekness, is uh, the antonym of it, is someone who's proud, self-confident, someone who feels unapproachable or unpleasant to be around. It could be someone who is perfectly content to live their life without God. They're perfectly happy to go through their life having no, uh, no uh, involvement of their creator in it. That could be the opposite of meekness. Meekness's counterpart is bossy, self-satisfied, and arrogant. I can think of no better place than to see the opposite of meekness than a uh, presidential primary debate. Uh, if you want to know what meekness doesn't look like, just watch the next presidential primary debate, where it's just a three-hour charade of people uh, lifting themselves up, everything from their hand size to their bank account to their delegate count. Like, it's, it's just this, this advertisement of self, this lifting up of self. That's the opposite of meekness. But there's a lot of things also that meekness does not mean, I think, that sometimes that we get confused with. In, in, in Scripture, meekness doesn't necessarily mean weakness. As one uh, Christian hip-hop artist put, if you think being meek is weak, try being meek for a week. So he put it that, that way for us. So it's, it's not weakness. It, it doesn't necessarily mean um, that, that you are, you're a compromiser for the sake of pleasing everyone or you don't stand up for anything. Um, it's not weakness. It, it very well could be a strong person, and yet that strength is under control. And so... That's the picture of meekness, someone who's not arrogant, someone who's not bossy and difficult to be around, but someone who's gentle, approachable, um, and, and mild. And so there's, there's a lot of stuff. I want to boil that down to one statement that's going to kind of guide the rest of our time together this morning. Um, my definition for meekness as it pertains to this morning is this. It's a submission to and a quiet confidence in the Lord that manifests itself with a spirit of gentleness and approachability to others. Let me give that one more time. I know it's a mouthful. Meekness is a uh, submission to and a quiet confidence in the Lord that manifests itself with a spirit of gentleness and approachability to others. And what I want to do with that statement for our time is, is to look at meekness in three ways. I want to look kind of at the first half of that statement and consider what does meekness before God look like? How do we manifest meekness in our relationship to God? Secondly, I want to look at what meekness looks like in our relationships to one another. And then lastly, I want to look at the ideal picture of meekness found in Jesus himself. So we'll consider it before God and our relationships with one another, and then ultimately the ideal picture of meekness that we see in Jesus. So I started off by saying meekness is seen in a submission to God. Meekness is seen in the way that we humbly submit to him as our Lord. We don't negotiate with him. We don't take advice from him. But we simply say like Samuel in the Old Testament, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Even when I would prefer to do the contrary, we simply humbly and submit our lives to the voice of God. 
Meekness recognizes the simple reality that God has been around a lot longer than we have, and he's the very one who designed the way that we ought to live our lives. And so out of a humble recognition of those realities, we acknowledge him as the authority of our lives, and we submit to him. So meekness is seen in its submission to God. It recognizes his assessment of us, even if we at times may disagree with it, and it bows its knee in surrender to the will of God over our lives. So meekness is seen in submission to God, but it's also seen in a confidence in God. It's not just passive or um, lackadaisical, uh, but, but meekness can be very confident, not in oneself, um, but it fully trusts the word of God and banks one's life on it. And the reason that I say that is as we look at this, this beatitude in Matthew 5.5, 5, Jesus is actually quoting from an Old Testament psalm that gives us a picture of this quiet confidence in the Lord. So I want to invite you to turn over there because we're going to look at it. I think it'll be helpful for our discussion. Turn over to Psalm 37 with me. This is where Jesus is quoting as he inserts this beatitude into the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to start in verse 3. I'm just going to read through this and see as I'm reading if you can note this person who's just calling for this confidence in the Lord, even when circumstances uh, would dictate otherwise. I'm going to start in verse 3. We'll read together. Uh, You can read along with me. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So reading through this psalm, you see a picture of someone who's trusting in the Lord, even though there's ample reason not to. You see someone who's committed their way to the Lord, someone who's committed the purposes of their life to him. You see someone who's trusting God to really act on his behalf. You see someone who's who's being still and patiently waiting for the Lord, not someone who has to make everything happen by their own hands, but they sit back with a quiet confidence in God. Uh, A 17th century commentator named Matthew Henry described it like this, the meek do not throw their weight around but rely on God to give them their due. God will give them the high place that they would not seize for themselves. So in meekness, you see this submissive attitude towards God, but you also see a steady confidence that his word can be true and that it can be trusted. So let me ask for you guys this morning who are gathered here, what occupies your mind with worry? What keeps you up at night forecasting the future. Usually that's the place that our worries are applied to. What am I going to do about, uh, maybe you need a job. 
Um, maybe you're in college and trying to figure out what you're going to do after school. Maybe it pertains to a relationship or even having children. What fills your mind with worry and angst and anxiety? What Psalm 37 and what Jesus is calling to are to be the kind of people who, though there is ample reason for worry in our life, recognizes that our God can be trusted, that he's trustworthy, and when we commit our way to him, he will care for us and he will do what's best for us. And that's the picture of the meek person that's, that's being described here. Now, naturally speaking, what would we expect of this type of person? This type of person who's gentle and doesn't grab for themselves but, but trusts the Lord to, to provide for them. We would expect such a person to be overlooked, to be, to be given a back seat to the movers and the shakers in this world. We wouldn't expect the meek to, to inherit much of anything. I was at a restaurant the other night with some guys uh, talking about meekness, and we thought we would just ask our server, uh, you know, what do you think about this attribute or this quality of being meek? And, and his response was very telling because I think naturally we would agree with it. He said, maybe in like a religious sense, meekness could be, you know, good for your relationships and things like that. But if you really wanted to change the world, could, probably couldn't be very meek. It wouldn't, wouldn't apply very well in that situation. And I, I think that's right. Someone who's meek, you wouldn't expect them to advance or to uh, fit this kind of description that we were talking about in the morning. And yet that's the irony of this passage. Jesus is telling us that it's exactly those kinds of people who will inherit the earth. Now, inheriting the earth, that's a, a great inheritance, but maybe it sounds vague to you. But remember in the Old Testament, this idea of the land or the earth. God enters into a special relationship with a group of people, with the nation of Israel. And part of that promise was that he was going to deliver them from their enemies, that he was going to uh, ease their fears and bring them to a place where they would dwell in security from their enemies, where they would dwell in prosperity, and where they would dwell in peace. And so it's inheriting the earth isn't just getting a plot of land from a deceased relative. It involves much more than that. And the Old Testament picture of inheriting the earth finds its ultimate fulfillment when Jesus returns and reigns over the earth in its totality. And it's, what this passage is telling us is that those who are meek are the ones who experience that state of reigning with him over the world in peace and prosperity and success. That's the irony of this, of this passage, that, that the, the meek are the ones who inherit the earth. He's describing that eternal state of God's kingdom where he rules the world and his people reign with him. And it's again that ideal state of peace and prosperity and safety that every one, last one of us desires deep down. And so that's what meekness looks like before the Lord. This, this submissive attitude, but yet this great confidence in him. What does meekness look like in our relationships with one another? I describe meekness as a submission to and a quiet confidence in the Lord that manifests itself with a spirit of gentleness and approachability to one another or to people. So let me break down this word gentleness and talk about that uh, for, for a few minutes. What do I mean by gentleness? Well, first of all, this is a relational gentleness. It applies in our context with one another to the way we interact with people, not just broadly speaking, but there's a focus of gentleness and the way we conduct ourselves with people, both inside the church and outside of it. Um, and, and there's a few, uh, few attributes that I would even attach to gentleness. One of them would be a sense of calmness. Um, the word gentleness here used 
when it was used in, uh, originally back uh, in ancient times, was actually applied to the animal world. And it was applied to a wild animal who had been tamed and brought under control. So with Andrew's uh, intro this morning, or when, when he came up and shared, he saw the opposite of that, an animal who was very rambunctious. Like, how many of you guys have that friend where if you go to their house, their dog is just going to be all over you? Like, completely out of control, so excited to see you. Does anybody have that friend? Maybe you are that person who has that animal that just is all over you. I used to have a, a golden uh, or a yellow lab. Uh, it was about two years old when we had him, and uh, his name was Tozer. Um, and, and he, generally around the house, he could be pretty calm if there wasn't anything going on. But the moment someone showed up at our door, it was like someone pumped this dog full of Red Bull or something, and they were absolutely out of control, all over the person, jumping on them, scratching them with their claws, um, uh, slobbering on them, all of that. Like, people probably feared coming to our house because we just couldn't get control of this dog when new people came over. So contrast that picture of an animal with a service dog, maybe that you see on the metro or out in public somewhere. Completely calm and under control, completely subdued to its, to its owner's wishes. There could be a hundred things happening in, in front of it, and yet it remains calm and under control. That's this, uh, the, the word that's being used here. So it, relationally, it involves a calmness. Um, an- another attribute that I would give to it is, is a sense of humility. This type of gentleness is very others-oriented in that it views others as more significant than ourselves. Um, it puts other people's needs uh, before our own. I've, I think we get a picture of this every time we gather on Sunday morning for the new moms that are in our room. Uh, so they're, they're not old, their kids aren't old enough to go back to the nursery yet. And so I know how it is. My wife is in this state right now. You come to church, new moms, knowing you may get almost nothing out of the service. Your whole morning might be devoted to taking care of the needs of this newborn because in humility, you're putting the needs of another person above yourself. Well, this meekness involves that type of uh, uh, valuing someone else above ourselves, putting their needs before our own. And then it also involves a sense of kindness as well. There's, there's a kindness associated with this gentleness, this relational gentleness that truly seeks the well-being of other people, whether it be friends or strangers. There, there's, a, there's a love that really wants to see people flourish um, if they're hurting, uh, to, to find help with that. And so this, this gentleness that we're talking about relationally involves a sense of um, calmness, humility, and kindness. And that's just kind of some abstract definitions, but putting that all together, there's a scene in the movie Patch Adams. Have you guys seen this movie? It's a little bit older, great Robin Williams film that captures this notion of relational gentleness really well. So Patch Adams wants to be a doctor, and it's back in like the 60s or 70s. And in that time, the medical practice was very impersonal. Um, just everyone was kind of just a patient, but wasn't really d- dealt with as a person. And he wanted to, to change that as a doctor. He wanted to provide change to how medicine was practiced. And so there's this scene with him in medical school. Maybe you guys have seen it, remember it. They're walking through this hall, and there's like 15 residents, and they're following this experienced doctor around, and he's looking at all of these patients and describing their illness. And they come up to this one lady who's laid out on a gurney, and her leg is, is really, uh, uh, has a lot of sores on it, and she just looks like she's in miserable state. And the doctor begins talking about this woman like she's some kind of science project or just a, a specimen to be looked at by these medical school doctors. And so he's like, what we have here is a case of type 1 diabetes, uh, possible gangrene. And the other doctors, uh, the, the doctors in training start asking questions about 
the, the patient, not really as a person, but just like, what kind of treatments could there be? And all these things like that. And he responds, possible amputation. And this woman just looks terrified. Like these, this, group, this pack of doctors in training are just looking down at her like she's a, a, a specimen or some kind of project. And you hear quietly from the back of the room. Do you remember what Patch Adams asked at that moment? He, he, you hear this quiet voice simply ask, what's her name? And everyone kind of awkwardly looks back like, what? That's not what we're focused on right now. And he, he just simply asks again, I was just wondering what her name was. And the doctor looks down at his uh, clipboard and he, he notes that uh, her name is Marjorie. And then you see Patch Adams just make eye contact with this woman who's really afraid and simply say, hi, Marjorie. And she smiles and responds by saying, hi. And this, this picture of this gentleness, of this care for someone as a human being, um, even more so for us who's made in the image of God. And so that's a picture of this meekness and of this gentleness in the way that we relate with people that's really beautifully captured in that scene. Now, I don't know about you, but before studying this, I would have probably said, sure, gentleness in our relationships is important, but I don't know that it kind of like is on the top of the list for how Christians should conduct themselves. But then I began looking at this word through the New Testament, especially in the uh, epistle, in the, past, in the uh, Pauline and some other epistles. And let me give you just a few examples of how important this characteristic of gentleness in our relationships really is. Galatians 6.1, I'm just going to read a few of them off. Galatians 6.1, um, uh, or before Galatians 6.1 is, um, sorry, Galatians uh, 5.23, gentleness is listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit. So one of those chief manifestations that God is at work in our life is the reality that gentleness is manifest in it. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So in our confrontation of people, there should be a great degree of gentleness in that. Ephesians 4.2, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have been received. And so what's the manner that we ought to walk in light of the calling that we've received? He says, in all humility and gentleness. Colossians 3.2, put on as God's chosen ones, ho- chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and meekness. Uh, Titus 3.2, talking to the church, says to speak evil to no one, uh, avoid quarreling, to be gentle and show perfect courtesy to all people. Like, I've got more on here. I could keep going. There's listed all over the New, New, the New Testament the importance of us co- conducting our relationships with a spirit of gentleness. Um, this is a priority for us, and this is what meekness looks like. Uh, but I also described uh, gentleness as having a sense of approachability. Because when someone possesses this kind of relational gentleness, what will the natural response be in light of that? You will be a very approachable person. You'll be a pleasant person to be around. People will want to spend time with you because of this relational gentleness that you possess. If you remember Jesus' words, the second time that meek is used in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says um, that he is meek and lowly in heart. So Jesus describes himself as meek or gentle. But what's the action that he calls people to just prior to describing himself as meek? He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. So those who are weary and heavy laden and going through really difficult things, carrying heavy burdens, the automatic response of someone who's gentle is that you'll be naturally drawn to them. 
to share with your life with them, to find help from people like that. And so that's the result of this gentleness is that we'll be naturally approachable to people. Um, I was the other day at a uh, high school in the area that my mother-in-law is actually the high school nurse for. Um, and she invited me to come and speak at the Christian club who was there. It was a really cool opportunity. I was thankful uh, to be able to spend some time with those kids. But as I looked at her relationship, uh, the, way, the, uh, the way she would interact with some of these students, I was really taken back by this picture of meekness and approachability because she knew so much about these kids' lives. Like everything from like, oh yeah, that's John. He's on the football team. He's really interested ultimately in just money and women. That's what his life is after. We've tried to talk to him about it. That's not going to satisfy him, but that's what he's about. And oh, that's, that's uh, ninth grader Maria, and she has this uh, relationship issue going on with this guy, and you know they're kind of fighting in their dating relationship right now. Like all kinds of stuff like that that she just knows about these students, but also uh, at, at other points, some very deep and very personal things that the students would share with her. On several occasions, uh, there's been uh, girls who have gone in there and shared with her that, she's, that they've gotten pregnant. They don't know what to do. And even in one instance, I remember last year, she was able to s- persuade that girl away from having an abortion. And that, that girl, that young girl gave birth to her child. Um, there's other people who have come in there with uh, serious addiction issues that they share with her about that stuff. And what I noticed about the way that she would interact with these students is that she would she'd sit very calmly, very gently, make eye contact, was very interested and engaged with what they were talking about. Now, which one of us wants to hear about a ninth grader's like relationship issues, like dating relationship issues? Like that's not an interesting thing for any of us to hear about, but very engaged, very empathetic to where they're struggling. These students naturally want to approach her with the things that they're going through because she possesses this kind of meekness, this kind of gentleness. And so let me ask us as a church family, what might this meekness look like in our midst, both as a church for people who are struggling and then even more for outsiders? What might that look like if we were to engage the world with this kind of gentleness, this approachability, this, this empathy that truly cares for people and that the struggle that they're going through? That would do wonders for our mission as a church family as we represent Christ through this region if we possess this kind of relational gentleness. So uh, here we go. We've, been, we've described our relationship with God and how meekness affects that. We've, we've described our relationship with one another Let's look lastly at the ideal picture of meekness that we see in Jesus. Um, He is the king of this kingdom, this inverted kingdom that we've been talking about. And all of these characteristics or these beatitudes find their most clear expression in the person of Jesus himself. He's the fulfillment of them. And so consider the approachability, the gentleness of Jesus that he had through his life. Jesus is a major political figure. He's a celebrity in the region where there's thousands of people who are following him and are are very intrigued by him. He's a major player, and yet little kids loved being around him. They felt so drawn to him and attracted, and the disciples would get frustrated. They'd see the kids coming and be like, man, you know, Bartholomew, I thought you had the threes class today. Get these kids out of here. Jesus has important things to do, and he would rebuke them. He'd say, no, let them come to me. Let them come to me. Little children were so drawn and and, and pulled towards him, but not only little children. Think about the kinds of people that felt attracted to and wanted to be around Jesus. The lowest and dirtiest 
and most broken people of society felt so comfortable with him, were so drawn to his gentleness and approachability. I think of the woman who is caught in adultery and this violent scene of people who are ready to pelt her with rocks and kill her for what she's done. And Jesus just clears them out and then gently looks at her and, 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 and forgives her and says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Be forgiven. I think of the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes that were drawn to him all the time. And not only gentleness, but consider his humility. The third time that the word meek is used or gentle is used in Matthew's gospel is as he's approaching Jerusalem. And he quotes from an Old Testament passage that, des- that describes the coming of a king. Now, when a king was coming into a city, you'd expect him to be mounted on a, on a strong horse to kind of display strength and power. But it says in that Old Testament passage and later in Matthew as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, it says, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Later that night, as he gathered his disciples for the last meal together, and the disciples are in the midst of arguing about who's the greatest and who's the strongest and who's going to get to sit at Jesus' right hand when he comes into his kingdom, Jesus does what is probably the most humble act in the history of the world by bowing down on his knees and washing the feet of his disciples with incredible humility and service and viewing them as more significant than himself. He was so approachable, he was so humble, and yet he was so confident in his God. Consider the last moments of his life as he's... uh, as he demonstrates this unshakable and quiet confidence in the Lord by never fighting back, by never defending himself, but simply trusting the Lord to deliver him. Through his death, he had at his disposal every possible means to be rescued, and yet he set those aside and carried on. In meekness, he quietly and confidently trusted the Lord to be the one to vindicate him. During his arrest, his disciples had swords drawn and were ready to throw down. And they, he tells them to put their swords back. He quietly lets himself be taken by the officials and the, the officials of the high priest. During his trial, he's berated with questions and false accusations, but he responds with silence. As he carried his cross up to Golgotha, he was mocked and spit upon by the Roman soldiers and those who were in the crowd using his execution for entertainment, but he carried on silently like a sheep led to the slaughter. He then dies on the cross for our sin and with another expression of his confidence in God, his last words, he commits his spirit to his father, knowing that evil surrounds him everywhere and that there is no ample reason in front of him to continue to trust God. And yet he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And Jesus, in the fulfillment of the psalm that we read earlier, of this one who commits his way to the Lord, even with evildoers surrounding him, who trusts in the Lord no matter what's happening, he becomes the fulfillment of that meek one who ultimately inherits the earth. And now he's raised and vindicated and shown that he truly is the savior of the world and the father bestows on him all authority on heaven and earth. And now he rules over the world and will one day come back to conquer sin and death forever 
and to reign supreme as the one who, as a result of his meekness and of his quiet confidence in the Lord, inherits the earth. And he invites us Christians who will follow in his path of meekness, all who trust in him and and believe in the gospel to be the ones who will ultimately reign with him in that day in the fulfillment of Psalm 37. So in Jesus, we have the ideal picture of what meekness looks like. And he's the one that we look to as we seek to grow in this for ourselves. Now, I recognize this morning that there are some gathered in our midst and you wouldn't call yourself as Christian. You're still trying to figure out who God is. Um, And I wonder what kind of thoughts have been in your mind about the character of God. If you're not a Christian, what have you often thought that God is like? Have you viewed him as just this judgmental figure that's ready to condemn you at any moment? Have you viewed him as some impersonal force that could have no real relevance in your life? Have you viewed him as this just massive, unapproachable being who could never be, uh, never be approached, uh, never be engaged with? My prayer for you this morning is that as you consider and wrestle with what God is like, that in the person of Jesus, you would see his reality. You would see the reality of what God is like. And I want to read over you the words that Jesus spoke in Matthew 11. You don't have to turn over there, but in, this, in, this, in these words of Jesus, we get the full character of God. He says in verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And if you were to put his word, his, what he wants to say to you this morning in one word, it's simply the word come. Come to him. If you are burdened, if you are sick of living a life without God, if you are, are struggling, there's an invitation from God to come to him in the person of Jesus, because he carried that burden for you on the cross, and he offers to set you free. And so let your first act of coming to him this morning be believing that he died for you, believing that he loves you, and believing that that he was raised from the grave so that you could be set free from all that weighs you down. So I want to invite you this morning to hear Jesus's words, this invitation, if you're burdened, if you're heavy laden, if you're depressed, come to Jesus. He is meek and he's lowly in heart and he will take you. In just a minute, we're going to take communion together. And if you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you just to hang out in your seat because we believe uh, from the bottom of our hearts that this meal that we share together every week is in fact for Christians because in it we're declaring that Jesus has in fact died for us to set us free and that he has been raised and, and we bank our lives, we trust and trust our lives to him. And if, if you don't believe that, I just want to invite you to hang out in your seat and, and to pray, to not let this time be passive for you, but to, to pray and to hear the invitation that Jesus has given to you this morning. Um, but if you are a Christian, I recognize that for all of us, meekness is not a quality that we naturally possess. Um, this is not 
something we wake, out of be- wake up out of bed in the morning and try to put on meekness. But, but one of the ways that we grow in meekness isn't so much through like trying harder or really trying to be meek, but simply acknowledging the first two Beatitudes. Because we said two weeks ago that the poor in spirit are those who inherit, uh, those, those are for whom the kingdom is for. And that those who mourn will be comforted. So those who are poor in spirit, who have nothing to offer God, and who are as a result mourning over the brokenness that we see in our life and in our world, there's really no option outside, beyond those two things to do anything else but be meek, to acknowledge that we don't have anything to offer God and to humble ourselves under that reality. And so as we come to the table, we're making a declaration that, that I am needy, that I don't have it all together, that, that I do need to be meek. And so let our coming to the table this morning be an expression of just that, that we need mercy and that we need to be forgiven. And forgiven people are usually meek people. And so... We've got two tables in the front. We've got two in the back. Uh, You can hang out in your seat for a few minutes and pray if you'd like to do that. Um, But let's come to the table together this morning in acknowledgement that we need mercy, um, that we're not meek as we should be, but we have a Savior who has been on our behalf, and he invites us to come to him. Amen? All right, let's come to him. Lord Jesus, we love you. Um, We would have never expected our Savior to be like you, but you're so much more than we ever could have asked for or imagined. You are the ideal picture of meekness, and we entrust our lives to you, Lord. Pray over my friends this morning where they might be struggling with worry about their future or worrying with um, doubt that you would give them a great confidence that they can be trusted. I pray also this morning that in our relationships you would help us to grow in this gentle approachability that we see in Jesus and that lost people would be drawn to us in light of that gentleness. So Lord, would you work that in our midst this morning? Um, And as we come to the table, we confess that we are needy, we are poor in spirit, we have nothing to offer you. And so would you meet us as we continue to um, engage in our worship through coming to the table and singing together? Would you meet us in this time, we pray, oh God. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.